people, I'm Juba, a London-born, Essex-raised and Berlin-based DJ and welcome to the Assurance podcast. Last year, I released Assurance, the documentary that I made about the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. After its release, I realised that there were so many other stories to explore and I wanted to continue the conversations that were started with the first documentary. In each episode, I'm going to be talking to inspiring women DJs in the global south and delving into their own personal journeys, their local music scenes and the impact of their social contexts on their careers and lives. This podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Share Her Power campaign, which is all about camaraderie over competition and women empowering women. There is a um, pornography, I would say, porno video in Japan shot on the train and then men groping women. It's a typical porno video for us. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just ridiculous, you know. And this kind of thing leads the fact that there are still a lot of groping um, incidents happening in Japan. So, yeah, that's a shame. I mean, porn is, <laughs> pornography in itself is a very interesting world. Hey, people. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Assurance Podcast. This is the last episode in this series. Oh my gosh, it's been such a journey. And thank you to everyone who's listened in, everyone who's tuned in and just like, you know, interacted with me, with my fellow guest DJs. And I really hope everyone has listened, learned, and just enjoyed the episodes. I think there's been some really entertaining chat, but also some really insightful perspectives given by everyone. I guess I've spoken to DJs from Egypt to Brazil, Chile, Uganda. Uh, Where was the other place? Lebanon. And today I'm speaking to a DJ from Japan, from Tokyo in Japan. How exciting. So today I'm joined by Risa Taniguchi from Tokyo in Japan. Risa is a DJ and producer who's at the forefront of the dark techno wave that's taken over Tokyo's underground in recent years. She makes lo-fi techno and has a penchant for UK bass. And since her first release in 2018, she's hit the top five of Beatport's left field techno chart and played everywhere from South by Southwest in the USA to Watergate in Berlin. But she's been around and hustling for a long time before that anyway. And she's actually also a trained classical music nerd, as she calls herself. (laughs) She's a trained pianist, violinist and trombonist and an all-round international talent. And I really enjoy that contrast of like classical music and electronic music. And Risa, hello, hello and welcome today to the Assurance Podcast. How are you? Hi, Jeva. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Yeah, how are you? I'm okay, you know. It's like the weather's getting better um, it's getting sunny outside and it feels weird because I'm so used to like grey, cold weather and I'm so used to being inside because I'm like, oh, I'm not going to go outside in this weather, that when it becomes sunny, I kind of feel like energised to get outside, but then I also start to feel guilty whenever I'm at home. So I get this mm-hmm. weird conflict at this time of the year when I'm like, oh, I love the weather, but then it makes me feel bad most of the time. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not outside, I'm like, oh, I'm wasting my life away. So it's a nice conflict, I say. Mm-hmm. What about you? What are you up to? Well, yeah. I've been doing well somehow, I would say. Yeah, due to Corona, obviously. Of course, gigs have been few and far between. But I've been making the most of the time I have to write songs every day. And actually, I've been working on quite a few songs since the pandemic had started around the world last year. Also, 
Oh, actually, um, this pandemic has inspired me to start caring about my, you know, my health. And I started going to the gym and go mm. running and on a regular basis, although I have never taken care of myself before at all. That's good in a way. Um, I had a massive health kick at the start of last pandemic. I was working out so much at home because I couldn't go to the gyms and stuff like that and going for jogs. And I actually got really fit and I started eating better. And then for some reason, I went home at Christmas to the UK. As in, I went home at Christmas. That's for an obvious reason. But for some reason, while I was there, I just like got out of the routine that I built up during the year and I put on loads of weight and got really unhealthy. So I'm trying to get back into that now. But... Mm -hmm. I definitely think a lot of people during lockdown started thinking about their health as well and like trying to use this time to do stuff like get fit or like you also make music. And I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I guess you can come out of lockdown knowing that you've made some songs as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, otherwise it's really easy to get depressed, you know, under these circumstances. So I just been trying to um, do some things um, that I can right now. So I've been doing well somehow, I would say. <laughs> it's good like mental health is such a big thing during this whole pandemic and I think it's really important that people are able to do things that keep them mentally happy because it can be very lonely it can be very frustrating and obviously for DJs or people like us who work in music it's it's a really hard time because a lot of our careers have you know sort of stopped so yeah we're trying to find different ways to basically keep positive yeah exactly yeah I agree with that Hey, Risa. So let's get into the chat. Um, with all of the DJs who have come onto the Assurance podcast thus far, and you are no exception, um, I ask you, what was your first step into DJ and how did you become a DJ? I want to know your story. So tell me, when did you first set your hands on a pair of decks? Well, it was when I was 18 years old and I was a university student. I was taken to a club by a friend who had the same job as me. And yeah, that was the first time I learned about electronic music and about how DJing could be, you know, potential career for me. And yeah, I was really into it right away. And from that day on, I worked part time, six days a week to save up. And three months later, I bought a Pioneer CDJ. Maybe it was 800s. Yeah, 800s and an affordable Vestax mixer and practice. Every day. That is so cool. I find it funny that you say you work part-time six days a week because for me, six days a week is more than full-time. Yeah. <laughs> so that is really funny to me. Exactly. I work <laughs> less now, you know. <laughs> exactly. You work less now and you got a full-time job. So funny. Um, but yeah, why was it such a surprise to you, like the world of electronic music? Was it something you hadn't experienced before? Well, you know, clubbing is not a normal thing for us as Japanese so I didn't even know the fact that there is clubs and the world of DJ and I didn't even know what the electronic music is. So yeah, it was kind of, I would say, eye-opening, eye-opening experience for me. A lot of crowds like from so many industries, something like fashion industry, cooler people, like models, DJs, whatever, like so many kinds of people were there. And they only thing they did was just dancing and drinking alcohol <laughs> and unhinged. Yeah, it was, yeah, mind-blowing. Yeah. That is so interesting to me because I didn't go clubbing until I was literally around 19 because I've got very strict Nigerian parents who didn't let me go oh, clubbing. Wow. 
in the UK, like club culture is so normal. Like you know about clubs from a very young age. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was growing up, there were underage clubs. So you have clubs that you can go to when you're younger than 18, because 18 is the legal age to go clubbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, from the age of like 10, 12, I knew about clubs. That's so interesting. So in Japanese culture, what do you, you know, what is a normal thing for going out then? It sounds a little bit funny, but do you know karaoke? <laughs> <laughs> of course I know karaoke. We love karaoke you do. here. Oh, wow. How do you say, ka- ka- how do I say it properly? Karaoke. Karaoke. Yeah, right. Okay, I, let me not say it like that because it sounds like I'm taking a mic. Kar- karaoke, <laughs> I try and say. Um, okay, so karaoke is the thing that you guys do. Yeah, or we can just have time together with our homies in one of their apartment or yeah wherever like just having drink together and go to izakaya type of restaurant together so yeah it's pretty much about drinking alcohol you know (laughs) (laughs) getting drunk that sounds very british to me i feel like japanese people and british people have that in common and this idea that clubbing and electronic music is this separate world also is very interesting to me because everywhere that i've been to more or less i'm aware of definitely has a prominent kind of like music, electronic culture in some way. Mm-hmm. So talking about, you know, the club culture, tell us about your first gig. How did that go? My first ever gig. It was also when I was 18 or 19 years old. Like right after I experienced the um, my first clubbing, as I had a lot of friends who were DJing and organizing events at the time. So when one of them found out that I really wanted to DJ, he booked me for his party and I had practiced DJing more than I ever had in my life until up until the day of the gig. And I even had a perfect list of tracks that I played and I even knew how many minutes and seconds to play the next songs just to be pre-prepared. And yeah, as a result, I was able to play without making a single mistake, but you know, my hands were shaking a lot and I was really nervous. I was sweating a lot. Also, yeah, I was the most drunk I've ever been in my life after that gig. You know what? That makes me laugh because it's definitely a common theme. Like your first ever DJ set, you over-prepare, you over-practice. The fact that you had the seconds written in, you know, of how long you play a song is just so funny, but it works out for you. It's a lot of pressure though. Like, I think people don't understand the pressure that goes into that first ever gig, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, right. You know, they didn't even know what the gig is as a Japanese person. So, yeah, when I, I remember that when I told my mother that, Mom, tomorrow is going to be my first DJ set. And my mom was like, oh, you you mean like a disco type of thing? So I was like, no, it's a club, man. So, Aww, that's so yeah, I was <laughs> I so that. nervous. I, w- I couldn't even sleep maybe and yeah but I enjoyed it yeah yeah was it a big party or was it still a small one but you were still really nervous of course it was a small one but (laughs) yeah and it was an underground sort of party and yeah there were maybe 100 people only like yeah yeah a lot of friends friend of mine and yeah but I think for your first ever gig, 100 people is definitely a lot of people. I think for my first ever gig, there were about 20 people and it was, yeah, a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. So I rate that. And I love that you got drunk afterwards because usually I feel like people would get drunk before in order to calm their nerves. But you're like, OK, I'm done. I can release. Like, I guess you had so much build up and then you just went crazy afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, now as well, um, I still don't drink alcohol right before my set. Oh, I I might 
I might have life. <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, you know, but maybe just a glass of beer and not a strong one. And then after after the performance, I would be able to go drunk. But yeah, now as well, I don't usually get too too much alcohol before my set. Mm. Just to concentrate on my set. Yeah, sure. You know what? It's funny. I actually don't really drink alcohol. Once again, it goes down to growing up in a strict household where I would never dare to get drunk as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And it just meant that I kind of got used to not drinking. And I had a little time in university when I started drinking more. But yeah, generally speaking, when I go to gigs, I drink water. I love a cup of tea. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't really drink it. Yeah, honestly, um, at New Year's, actually, funnily enough, my friend, I was playing in Geneva in New Year's 2019. Mm. And uh, my friend's dad, he was living in Geneva, he bought me a flask of tea, of Earl Grey tea. And it was so nice. Like, I'm DJing, it's like this really cool moment. And then like, oh, wow. <laughs> next to me, I've got this warm... <laughs> This warm flask of tea. Oh my God. <laughs> so British as well. Oh. I know, but it was perfect. Is it so British, you say? <laughs> yeah, tea. Oh my gosh. Tea oh, yeah, is right. like, the. it's funny because, yeah, like tea is like Indian and China, China tea is big in mm-hmm. Chinese culture, I think, mm-hmm. as well. But um, tea is like a really British thing. And it's just like very cliche that the British DJ is there with a, a flask of yeah, tea rather than like, a gin and tonic actually that's really British too anyway well yeah I like that you um you know you practice hard for your gig and it went well you got really drunk afterwards <laughs> and had the best time of your life yeah, so right. that's really cool mm-hmm. so Risa hey Risa I want to know where you're from I want to understand your context and I think for me, when I sort of got into contact with you, I was really intrigued because you are from Japan, you're from Tokyo. And for me, Japan, Tokyo, just Asia, generally speaking, is a part of the world I know nothing about. Obviously a bit through research on Google, but I've never been there. I've never been anywhere similar to Japan or anything like that. So I'm so intrigued to find out, you know, about Japanese society, about Tokyo. So tell us, you know, what's the situation over in Tokyo? Well, yeah, I believe that Japan is a unique country, I would say in many ways. First of all, 98% of Japan's population is Japanese and only 2% are foreigners. Therefore, I feel that, you know, it's just my personal opinion, but uh, sometimes I feel that there are very few people who are open-minded because there are so many people who are only familiar with one culture. So yeah, I really love my country and that's why I'm still living in here. But I sometimes see some of the issues we have in our country. For example, you know, we think it's the most important that to follow the rules, like any rule. From our childhood, we've been told by our teachers in school or adults around us that we have to follow the rules which were existing. And that is seen in many aspects, I would say. So, um, for example, you know, on the street, uh, we don't Mm. usually cross the red light. You know what I mean? Even when there is no cars at all. So I'm always (laughs) surprised whenever I get some guests from overseas and they attempt to cross the red line um, just by checking if there is a car or not. And I was like, oh, wait, it's a red light. 
And they were like, what? No cars here. So. Oh my God, that would so be me. I am that person. Like, even if it's a, like a, there's a car coming, I'm like, okay, I can beat the car oh, and wow. I run across the road. Um, and it's funny because actually the UK is a very individualistic society mm-hmm. in many ways, I would say. And I think things like not following rules or only following rules when they apply to you mm-hmm. um, is definitely something there. But I think it's funny because in Germany, people do follow the rules a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so I've had so many situations where I've been crossing a, a traffic light when it's red mm-hmm. and some random person shouts at me and I'm like go away like oh. leave me alone I'm not doing anything wrong. like really there's no cars here so That's yeah yeah else. definitely and Oh, wow. Yeah, no, yeah, oh, yeah. German German society, Berlin society, it can be quite aggressive in some ways. Like not always, but uh-huh. it's a, also a very aggressive language. So even when someone's telling you to like step back, it can sound like they're telling mm-hmm. you off. <laughs> yeah, I also think that there is there are differences between Germany and our country. Although we have some kind of similar tradition, like following the rules, I would say Japanese people they don't usually focus on why this rule is what mm. we should follow, you know? So we tend to stop thinking of, about the, um, mm. the uh, reason behind this rule. So say like, for example, okay, let's say there is a celebrity who took a drug, like illegal drug, and uh, who, get, who got arrested for possessing an illicit drug. In that case, Japanese people would treat them as if they were murderers, you know. Oh, wow, really? You know what I mean? Like, that's because they just think that drug is bad things and we cannot do mm. drugs. We cannot take drugs. But they don't even know what's the differences between, um, let's say, marijuana and um, meth, let's say. Mm-hmm. Which is, oh, that's a big difference. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> a very big difference. Yeah, exactly. And to me, this part is even more dangerous to me. Like, this sounds more dangerous. Mm. So, yeah, that kind of things happen all, yeah, all the time. And yeah, I have another example of this as well. Like, you know, in public space, something like hot springs or public gyms. People with tattoos cannot go in. Did you know this? Like in Japan. I was going to ask about tattoos because I heard that it's quite taboo in culture. So you can't go in if you've got a tattoo. Yeah, and I have tattoos um, here and there. So it's a shame for me. Like I really love hot springs and uh, I'd like to go to gyms uh, whenever I want. But I always have mm. to wear a long sleeve to hide my tattoos. And you know what? Um, people... Uh, prohibit this just because tattoos is what mafia do. You know what I mean? Oh, we, what? Mafia in Japan? Yes. What we call the Yakuza. A Yakuza. Yaku- I've definitely heard that word, <laughs> Yakuza. I find that kind of psyche very interesting because I'm the opposite. I really don't like the idea of being dictated to or have rules set for me and, you know, which are meant to usurp my own ability to decide for myself Mm -hmm. so I find that quite scary in some ways like the idea of you're told what you have to do and you do it anyway because to me it's a very fine line between that and like essentially dictatorship and like you being forced to do Mm -hmm. uh, you know anything and it's a very interesting one because also then at the same time individualism and only thinking about yourself or following your own rules can itself also pose problems following rules it's has pros and cons at the same time, you know? Like Yeah, definitely. Because of this rule, we can live in a safer space. Like, you can still go out at midnight 
mm. women can still do. So I appreciate it. But at the same time, I sometimes feel cramped with this role mm. because they don't usually value our individuality and each characteristic as a human. So Definitely. And do you know what I find so fascinating as well? The idea that Japan is 98% Japanese because I grew up in the UK and it's pretty much a multicultural society and even like white English people, I guess, if that's what you call it. Um, very few English people are actually 100% like English from the English soil. Mm-hmm. And I'm also of Nigerian heritage. And once again, it's a majority like Nigerian or what is now Nigeria, the sort of mass that was created and turned into Nigeria, mm-hmm. which was like individual ethnic groups. Anyway, that's a whole other colonial story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like um, what is now Nigeria is mainly made up of like black African people. But even then in Nigeria, you have like different African migrants and then even migrants from other parts of the world. How does Japan being so monoracial impact the society as well? Yeah, because we have only, um, almost only single ethnicity. So which leads that people don't usually talk about our politics or government because they don't have chances, I would say, um, opportunities where they can exchange their ideas with diverse type of people. So they don't even question about anything. Like, I'm, I'm not saying everyone is like that. Of course, of course. I mean, massive disclaimer, can't generalize every single person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you for this. Primer. So now you can stereotype what you want. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, um, there are not so, many, so much diversity because of the uh, single ethnicity in Japan. And this raised the fact that people, especially younger people, do usually have interests on politics or what's happening in our country because they just believe that this is the fact and this is what our government decided and they don't even question that much. That's the issue, I think. And um, that's why I always... Uh, I'm always surprised whenever I go to abroad and see that younger generation discussing about their um, government or politics and just as if it's a part of their um, life. I think that's such an interesting idea, the fact that Japan being so monoracial or 98% Japanese um, leads to it being weirdly less political because (laughs) everyone kind of thinks the same. And I guess that also goes into the idea of people following rules. And obviously not everyone thinks the same, but it's that uniformity in thinking also leads to a more like calm political state, which is very interesting. And I wonder (laughs) what that means about the rest of the world and more diverse countries. (laughs) And like, hmm, maybe peace would come if all countries were full of the same people. I believe we we would like to be open to diverse type of people, of course. But before that, we at the same time, we need to have solid knowledge about the diverse people. Like there should be different ideas coming in and we should be prepared to accept that kind of ideas. Risa, I feel like we could honestly do a whole podcast on Japanese society because for me it's so interesting and maybe I'm overindulging in my um, interest in where you're from. But tell us about how Japanese society, how Tokian, Tokian, do you say Tokian? Tokian, How Tokian or Japanese society impacts your music scene? Well, to speak about this topic, I think I would need to mention about our old tradition, which is... Uh, what we call seniority, like Japanese society is based on seniority. 
in everywhere, like where you. So wait, sen seniority, sen yeah, so senior. senior, yeah, seniority. Okay, cool. Which means that you always should respect your elders. So because of this fact, it has a big impact on our music scene as well, especially in the club scene. Because you know, if you're a promoter and then you're about to book an artist who is older than you. Then you're always concerning about if you should put this act as a headliner because this person is older than you, and you should show your respect to this person. You know what I mean? So that's mm. yeah, that's leads that for younger generation, it's really hard to build their profile and to be a headliner for an event. Yeah. Also, you know, first of all, music. It's not a part of our life in Japan, so especially clubbing is not normal for us. So that means there are just a few industry people. I mean, especially、um, media or press,、uh, like music media, who have solid, robust knowledge or、um, skill for evaluating the music or artists in Japan. So, which means, yeah, there there are still、uh, some of the、um, great media, music media here, but in general, they don't usually put forth an effort on digging newcomers and new music. That's why, in a lot of Japanese festival, headliners are always the same. And、mm. yeah, I I feel it's not performance based, you know. Like when I was in the UK and. When I went to other countries, I feel that they book artists based on their profile or their popularity, and yeah, whatever. But in in Japan, all you have to do is、um, being social to everyone, and you know, keep your appearance beautiful, like that kind of thing. So I don't feel it's performance based in my country. Interesting. I think. The idea that there isn't a very large respect or understanding of club culture or electronic music, I can understand how that impacts the development of the club scene. But I find it so fascinating this whole age thing, the seniority、um, mm -hmm. idea. Essentially, you have like this reverse ageism in Japan, which is really funny because it feels like in the UK or in Germany, it's the other way around. Especially in the music industry, <laughs> where the older you get, especially as a woman, the less. Appealing you become, not just in terms of your looks, but also in terms of how appealing you are as an artist. Like it's always we're always chasing youth and chasing younger people. Whereas in Japan, it's almost the other way round, where you respect age so much more. But they both have their downsides because in Japan it means you can't. There's not space for younger artists. Whereas in the UK or the West, it's like. It means that the older you get, the less、um, appealing you sometimes feel, and you feel like there's a ticking clock against you. Have you ever heard the story about Japan? Like when we first meet up a person, our first conversation tend to be like, "Hi, nice to meet you. By the way, how old are you?" It's kind of typical conversation we have as a Japanese, which sounds really weird to you, I know, but I didn't even notice. That is that was weird until I went to other countries, in the UK or European countries. I've never been asked by someone like how old are you in the first place. So yeah, just because we have two classes of how we speak in Japanese, like um, how can I say polite type of grammars and 
other way around. So we are just trying to identify which one we should use for this person. Yeah, that's so... Because in German, I know in English, <laughs> English people, first of all, I swear like in the UK, we have no respect for age. Like young people are so rude to old people sometimes. And they just think they have youth on their side. Um, I think in Nigerian culture, for example, you have more of a a culture of respect, but it can be very class-based. So it's like a lot of the time it's also age. So so you talk to people and when you, you have to work out their age and if they're older than you, you talk in a different version yeah, of right. the language. Yeah, like we have this um, way of speaking, which is called Keigo. It's a more mm. polite way of speaking. Like we usually use this for elder people, elderly people like older than you I guess in Germany there also is the polite and the impolite form so if I don't know someone very well I'll speak to them with the mm-hmm. polite German whereas if I know them well and they're my friend I'll speak to them with the informal German but it's not based around age but yeah I find that's very interesting that whole idea of age being so important but being older being better and how that impacts the mm-hmm. music scene the idea that older DJs always occupy the headline spots. And that means that younger DJs struggle to find their position. But I guess also, in a way, the younger DJs, when they get older, they also want to enjoy that privilege that comes with being older. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why I was thinking about that. Like, I was hoping for um, becoming older when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah, because when you become older, then suddenly you can enjoy the privilege. That's fascinating. Maybe I need to move to Japan because as I get further and further into my 30s, I want to feel like I can, you know, benefit from ageism as opposed to suffer from <laughs> We're going to use Keigo, <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, you can, speak to me, you can speak to me in Keigo. But what's the language you use for younger people? Oh, it's, it doesn't have any name for it. Like, it's just a normal, like, yeah, casual word. I get it. Oh, but we can still say, like, Tameguchi. <laughs> Tameguchi is um opposite way of Keigo. Oh, my God. When I was younger, I had a Tamagotchi. Tamag- Tamagotchi. Oh wow! Oh wow! It's nostalgic. Do you remember? Do you know? You know Tamagotchi though. Like the, there were these little like electronic of toys. Of course, it's from our country. You know. Oh wait. So does that come from the word Tamagotchi? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I had one. Like I had multiple Tamagotchi when I was child. Oh my god! <laughs> Same. I had so many Tamagotchis. I loved them. I used to like take them to school with me and like bring them out and like feed my <laughs> little bird. Oh my god, Tamagotchi. I'm sure my Tamagotchi is somewhere in my bedroom, Do my you? childhood bedroom. Oh, wow. Anyway, honestly, this is such an interesting conversation because I just feel like everything that you're saying to me is blowing my mind. Um, but let's go into furthermore into the music scene. Like, how is it for women in the music scene in, in Tokyo, in Japan? Well, yeah, there are still fewer female artists than male ones. And we yeah, we often see events that consists of only male artists and I don't think that has changed much in the past or present and it's not just a music scene but in Japan there is still a you know stereotype that women are happy to get married and have children and there are still many companies or situations that make it difficult for men to take parental leave which makes it difficult for women to be active in achieving what they want to do. So I sometimes even hear that when women in their 30s and change jobs, they are often asked at the interview, like, do you plan to have children in the future? It's funny because it's an unspoken thing in the UK. Like in a lot of Western countries, it's hard for women who want to have children in workplaces sometimes. But places like Sweden, I hear are really good where you can equally distribute parental leave between the man and the woman or whichever Mm -hmm. parents there are. You know what? We even have a coined word like ikumen which refers to 
mm-hmm. on men who participate their childcare. That fact um, makes it really difficult for us women to keep doing what we want to do. Like this can apply to the DJ world as well. So in this kind of culture, it's really easy for you to imagine that how hard for DJs to have children as a woman, you know. There are still a few female DJs who have children and got back to the industry again, but it's just a few because there isn't a system where mother can have enough time for their activities. So yeah, that's a shame. And so for example, well, let's say there is a mother who have a child and then let's say this woman uh, let this child uh, stay in this mother's uh, mother's home, like just to um, ask them to take care of this child. Then uh, sometimes this woman gets blamed by others because Mm. mothers always supposed to be a mother you know so they always stay with their children so imagine that if it's a dj you know if it's a dj and you go out as a dj to a club and then leave the child in your place or ask someone to take care of them you know what I mean? Like, it's really hard for us as a Japanese. Yeah, the pressure of motherhood. And it's annoying because, you know, it takes two to make a child. And it shouldn't only be the, you know, the um, responsibility of the woman to to do all of the upbringing. I guess the burden, sh- the burden, not a burden, the responsibility should be shared. And it's really interesting because I've got a friend here, actually, who's pregnant. The baby's coming oh. soon. Um, and we always, yeah, yeah congratulations. congratulations. And um, the child is coming soon. And we always laugh that we're going to take the baby to gigs with us or that, you know, she will leave the baby with the dad and go and DJ and come back home. So it's really interesting because I guess here, um, having a child and being an artist is definitely hard and there can be challenges, but it doesn't always feel like you have to choose between the two, not anymore. So yeah, I guess that says a lot about why there aren't that many women in the DJ scene. And uh, it seems like it's going to take some time for that stuff to change. But what about women in these club scenes as well in general? Like how is it for women in the club scenes? Well, I would mention that, you know, in general, clubbing is an amazing experience for everyone, like including me or women but yeah unfortunately there are still some situations where we see men in a club get hinged and get super drunk like shit-faced and (laughs) and yeah that's fine that's fine but you know after that they would use followers to women and you know it's kind of it's sort of a sexual harassment kind of thing happen in the club, like because it's the place where people getting drunk and um, getting mad to um, you know mm. to hinge themselves. But in that case, what's the issue is that we as a performer, we don't want to make a scene in the club, you know. So only thing we can do is that just laugh it off or just pretend to be like. We don't care, like, that's fine. Mm. But obviously, it's not. Like, we, we, we want to say, like, mm. no to this guy, but we cannot do that. So, yeah. Sometimes I see uh, women get angry towards this, angry to a guy, but it's still rare. 
to see that. Yeah, oh, I think the issue, I guess, whether you're a DJ or like a, an artist trying to be professional or just a woman in society, I think there's such a big question around like consent and, you know, no means no and how men are allowed to approach women mm-hmm. in society. And I think the problem is, is that a lot of the time from a young age, we're not necessarily teaching men or women to how to interact with each other in that way. And I think a lot of behaviour that actually is sexual harassment or is inappropriate is normalised from a young age. You know, like growing up, there's so many mixed messages of like men approaching women in clubs or men approaching women in the street and approaching them in a way that actually isn't that respectful, but we're meant to see it as a compliment because they find us attractive. And there's a fine line between stopping humans from interacting. And I don't want to get to a point where we don't interact Mm -hmm. as human beings because I think it's good whether you're attracted to someone or you like someone as a friend to interact. But I do think there is a problem of men thinking it's okay to touch women or make comments towards women and thinking that that's what we want or not even necessarily caring if we want that, but just doing Mm. it anyway. Yeah, right. And you know what? Maybe it sounds weird or just gross to you, but there is a um, pornography, I would say porno video in Japan shot on the train and then men groping women. It's a typical porno video for us. You know, you know what I mean? It's 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 just ridiculous, you know. And this kind of thing leads the fact that there are still a lot of groping um incidents happening in Japan. So yeah, that's a shame. I mean porn is pornography in itself is a very interesting world. But I guess like yeah, that sort of mentality and it being normalized or it being seen as something that should happen, it really does impact how people relate to each other. Yeah, in addition to that, we um Unfortunately, we still have a strong lookism in Japan, especially in women world. So on the television, yeah, we often see that men using vulgar words just as a joke to women, women celebrity, just as a compliment sometimes as well. And yeah, that leads other men that, oh, we can do that to women, you know, in a regular, mm. like in a daily life. So, yeah, and also this lookism issue is really an issue in Japan in every aspect because it can refer to our club society as well because, you know, if you're a female DJ, you're supposed to be beautiful just to be popular or just to build up your profile. You know what I mean? That's why the beautiful female DJs, of course, there are so many good, beautiful female acts in Japan, but sometimes promoters prioritize their beauty, like looks, rather than their mm-hmm. profile or their ability or talent. That's the issue. And that's why I started thinking about uh, working more internationally because uh, when I realized that fact, I was like, okay, I'm out. I think, first of all, going to the lookism thing, that is um, so interesting, the whole like sexy DJ idea and how actually the better looking you are as a female DJ, the more appealing you are to be booked because I'm pretty sure no one cares if male DJs are ugly. You know, the fact that you were like, I'm going to look for gigs in other parts of the world to avoid that sort of culture, it's, um, yeah, it's really, um, it's very telling. So I don't think I've ever experienced, anyway, at least explicitly, the need to be No, I won't lie. No, obviously image does impact women in this part of the world as well. I'm not going to lie about that. But I guess it's not so explicitly said, like the lookism and like, you know, you have to be a sexy DJ in in Berlin. But then Berlin is Berlin and it's Mm -hmm. a very... (laughs) Sexy and Berlin do not go together in that typical way. Circling back to the issue of um, it being normalised on TV for men to make inappropriate Mm -hmm. comments... 
it starts from such a young age. And I think the problem is, is that in society, we normalize this sort of behavior of making it seem like it's a compliment when men approach you or men do things in a certain way, which impedes your ability to decide if you want to be approached or not. I don't think, as I said before, people approaching one another or men approaching women should be banned. But I do think we need to encourage a society where we actually teach men especially how to read signals and how to be respectful when they approach women and when to approach women and what kind of language they use. When you have these images that are shown on TV that make things like constantly pestering a woman normal or like, you know, following a woman when she's walking down the street in a car, then that gives the wrong idea to like young boys. Actually, you know what? Funnily enough, you know what? I'm going to tell a story. About a week ago, I was walking down the street, yeah? I was going for my daily walk in the COVID-19 times. And I'm not lying to you, this boy who must have been about seven years old, no older than seven years old, he looked at me and goes, haha, can I have your number? Oh, wow. Seven years old. And <laughs> the thing girl. is, I actually, I told him off. I was like, excuse me. This was in German. I was like, come here. And the poor boy, the second I said that, he looked like he was about to cry. But I was like, never, ever do that again. Do not start from such a young age, basically accosting women in the street. You don't do that. And it was like, it really frustrated me that at such a young age, this young boy is learning that kind of behavior. Like, I'm not trying to tell people not to, you know, approach people. I'm not trying to make people afraid of talking to strangers, you know, but it's one thing having a nice conversation and the connection. And it's one thing learning that kind of behavior where you basically catcall women or accost them on the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, Kind of interesting to me because um, maybe if I were in that situation or if Japanese women were in that situation, maybe we would be like, oh, oh, you're a cute little boy. Like, where did you learn these words? You know, so mm. yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how you reacted to this boy. And yeah, it was kind of like learning for me yeah I mean (laughs) I think I can react quite aggressive not aggressively but I I find that behavior very um I think it's very imposing it's very it can lead to a lot of misogyny and I don't like it when men approach you unnecessarily or in in an unrequited manner whether in the streets or in the club scene I think it's very clear when there's a connection between someone you don't know and when you're allowing someone to come and talk to you and I think, you know, growing up in the UK, we had all these situations as teenagers where a guy would try and you know, speak to you and you don't want to speak to them. And they're like, excuse me, excuse me, I'm talking to you. And it's like, but I don't want to talk to you. And then you either have to tell them that they've, you've got a boyfriend or you have to like basically endure their abuse when you decide you don't want to talk to them and they call you ugly anyway. And it's just like normal things that women get used to um, and that sometimes it's glorified in popular culture. So I don't know, for me, when I saw that little boy, I was like, nah, we, we can't start this behaviour so young. So <laughs> yeah, that right. was my that was my deed for the day, telling off a, a young boy in the streets. And hopefully <laughs> when he grows up, you know, if he ever gets the urge to chase a woman in the streets, um, he'll remember that moment when he was told off by this old lady mm-hmm. for asking for her number. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I hope to be able to do like that kind of activities but you know what in japan we are behind i would say because mm. you know for example when 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 we use a word of feminism or gender inequality then you would be seen like you would be considered as a, an extreme person you know what i mean which mm. makes the things more difficult like to solve the problem interesting yeah yeah, no, but feminism is definitely a dirty word in, in some parts of the world, even here. So I definitely agree that there's a long way to mm-hmm. go, essentially. 
podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Share Her Power campaign, encouraging camaraderie over competition amidst women. It's all about women uplifting women. So, Risa, we are now coming to the advice section. I always find this bit very useful because I think it's great for women like yourself to give um, advice or just tips to people who want to DJ, women in particular who want to DJ, especially in your regions. So what advice would you give to women or people in Japan, Tokyo, or just the wider world who want to DJ, want to be part of the music world? Well, um, I guess the advice for DJs and producers would be different. But in general, um, I guess many people think that standing out on social media is a gateway to success. But I do believe that the only people left at the end of the day are those who have the ability and those who are always working hard. It sounds a little bit Japanese, but I do think so. So yeah, for the people who want to become DJ, I would encourage you to um, go to as many clubs as possible. It's really hard right now just because of the pandemic. But yeah, listen to as many DJs as possible and you should put yourself in the shoes of someone who likes clubbing by dancing to get a feel of what people jam to. And by doing so, I believe you will be um, able to get a hands-on perspective when people get excited and dance. So yeah, I do also believe that we directly lead the um development of knowledge and skills to become a DJ. Also, um, yeah, also when it comes to producing, the only way is through training, I would say. So yeah, definitely production is really hard at first, but one day it will become fun indeed. And in my case, no matter how much I didn't want to write a song, I would just open up my DAW put my headphones on and just do something like even a little bit every day. So yeah, and last but not least, maybe it's most important thing for you, which is that just to try not to think that you want to be liked by everyone, which is probably the most yeah important thing, I guess. And yeah, actually, I used to think that way myself. I think my career has been has been more successful since I stopped doing that. Yeah, that's pretty much about what I can say to you. Yeah, no, um, very salient points made there. And I think everything you said was spot on because I've been talking to my friends recently and we're just like, oh man, should we use TikTok? <laughs> like, do we have to get on TikTok now? Because that's where everyone is for content. Because it's like social media is a hard one because I definitely think there's a lot of use in utilizing social mm-hmm. media well. I use Instagram and I use like Twitter, kind of, Facebook, kind of. But I do use social media to try to like boost my engagement with people. Yeah, I do too. But I do think sometimes, yeah, I think sometimes it's easy to get fixated mm-hmm. on social media and content and almost not put as much thought into your actual musical craft. And so, yeah, I I definitely agree with that because I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure to perform um, for the social media and sometimes it can detract from your music. And I really hope what you say about opening your music making program and it becoming easier and easier. I hope that's true because I'm trying to learn to produce mm. music now. And every time I open Ableton, like my heart sinks. I'm like, this is so confusing. <laughs> but I have to say it has gotten easier. It's gotten easier mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. You know what? Even for me, it's just recently that I realized it's really fun to produce music, you know. So 
it takes time. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I hope it, I hope that's the truth. And I'm looking forward to getting to a point where I find as much enjoyment out of trying to produce music as I do out of DJing. What I also like doing on the podcast is I like to shout out organisations, groups, people, collectives, anyone who's doing the work for improved gender representation in the music scene. So, you know, looking at your context in Japan, in Tokyo, are there any groups or people doing the work for women in music or better gender representation in music? We only have just a few, but we've got this organization called Women in Music Japan. And this is the Japanese branch of the um, Boston-based Women in Music NPO, which was established last year. And they regularly hold talk sessions featuring female artists where I can get to know lots of Japan-based female artists that I've never known and listen to what they think. So it, it is really helpful for me because, yeah, I have less opportunities to talk in person with um, other female artists. But yeah, personally, I feel that the network of female artists in Japan is almost um, non-existent still now. And I also feel that the network is clearly divided by genre. Mm. Because, you know, for example, if you're a techno DJ, you have almost no opportunities where you can meet up a house female DJ. You know what I mean? It strikes me that there's a lot of work to do, but I also find that when there is a lot of work to do, it can be quite daunting, but it can also be quite exciting because it means that there's a lot of mm-hmm. space for change and positive change also. And, you know, you said that before, that the idea of like being a feminist is a dirty word mm-hmm. in society, but maybe with time, I think a lot of the time, the most radical, even positive changes, they're demonized at the beginning. And then eventually they become more accepted in normal society or wider society and people start to engage more with the ideas. It's just a matter of time. I'd rather try to create a place where like society where women can feel safe to be confident about speaking what they think towards these kind of issues. Like, for example, feminism or gender inequality. So, yeah. And also I would would like to emphasize that I wasn't... um, conscious about these issues as well, you know? Like, I haven't been able to realize what the issue was until I got to know with a lot of friends from all over the world. And I'm luckily, I'm surrounded by a lot of amazing people right now. But until then, I didn't even realize that. So it's not like um what you should feel guilty of that you don't know about this issue. But I'd rather help creating a society where we can feel safe as a woman to speak about Mm. what we think, like our opinions in public. Yeah, I think what you said is really important because a lot of the time it's easy to demonize people or be very impatient with people who don't seem to know the right thing, I say in very Mm -hmm. commas, but the right thing or the progressive thing to do. And we all have to remember that we all started at some point, you know, understanding these concepts. Like I didn't understand feminism. I didn't even understand racial equality in the same way I do now, um, you know, 10 years ago. And at one point I probably, <laughs> there's a lot of things that I allow to happen. I remember, I don't know, do you know what blackfacing is? Mm-hmm. You know blackface? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So <laughs> at my 18th birthday party, it was a 90s birthday party theme. Um, and these two boys, I, I wonder if they remember this. They were like, oh, um, Pam, because I was called Pam in my school. That's my first name. Can we uh, paint our faces brown and come to the party with Afro wigs on? Because that there was like a 70s oh, idea, wow. like the 70s Afro. It's not even the right era. I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? It's just a joke. And now I have these pictures where I'm standing with these two white boys in Afro wigs with brown faces. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, honestly, 
I know, it's ridiculous. And you know what? I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm not going to, like, you know, shame myself about it because I was an 18-year-old kid who had no idea about, like, the realities of what racism really was. And I'm a black woman, you know? So, so yeah, essentially what I'm saying is I think it's really important that, yeah, we also give people space to learn because we can't just assume that everyone knows everything straight away and therefore we all have to always be right from the beginning because sometimes we do take time to have to understand ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Risa, Risa from Tokyo, Japan. Um, We're coming to the last section of the last show in this series, in this assurance podcast, the first series. So I'd like to close off with reflections again. I want you to share with me a moment where you doubted your decision to DJ or just, you know, found it really hard in your craft. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this pandemic depressed me a lot. Like, even now, I feel depressed sometimes because it's really tough to imagine that I would DJ again. Like, I would get back to the booth and meet up with a lot of friends there. So DJing is one of the um, my life activities before the pandemic started. So losing this moment means a lot to me. So I somehow trying to focus on my producing right now so that I can forget imagining about uh, what the future situation is like. Yeah, I think a lot of DJs have found it quite scary, this whole pandemic situation. But what's it been like in Japan? Having seen the news, it almost feels as if over in your part of the world, things have been opening up, actually, much better than they have here anyway. Well, it's getting better. But, you know, many of the clubs still have to close at 9 p.m., which is really ridiculous for club lovers, you know. The moment we want to have is that uh, we will see the sunshine after the club close. And yeah, so there is still a lot of uh, regulations in our country. We can still go to restaurant, but uh, you have to care about the closing time, which is at 9 p.m. right now. And opening up all the clubs still take a lot of time. Mm. Hang on in there. We'll be fine. Pandemic has been a hard one. I remember when things first started shutting down last year, I really, really felt it. As a DJ, it really does take away more or less your entire livelihood. So it's, it's been hard, but we're here. We're going to get through it. And on a more positive note, could you share with us a yes moment when you were really glad about your decision to become a DJ or producer? Well, it's every time. Like, it's every time I DJ, I feel the yes moment. And it may sound a little bit cheesy, but when I stand in the booth and DJ, I always feel that, you know, I was born to do this. This kind of feeling is what I have. And yeah, especially when I play a song that is intended to make people go wild and it works, I feel the happiest. Also, when I receive a compliment message from an artist who lives in a faraway country that I would never be able to meet if I lived in Japan, that is also, yeah, a yes moment as well. It's cheesy, but it's cheesy, but true. You're very lucky that you have a job where you're able to, you know, every time you get into the booth, every time you go to work, essentially, you feel this energy and this fire and this passion because a lot of people don't feel that. So it's definitely a very, a great thing that you found that. 
And you mentioned about messages. So the final, final, final question of the first series, can you share with us a message that you've received from someone that has really made you feel positive, um, sent good vibes your way, just made you feel good about yourself as a DJ? Well, just recently, there was an uh, audience member who gave me feedback after one of my performances. He said to me, like, your DJing is like a French three course meal. And I enjoyed, <laughs> yeah. And he said he enjoyed it from start to finish without getting bored. This made me very happy and motivated me a lot. What a poetic way of saying it. This is like a free course meal. Yeah. Nice. It was amazing. That's definitely the kind of positivity that you need. Yeah. And Risa, you know what? Can I? I don't know. This is really probably inappropriate, but you know what? When you email me the first time, it's funny because here there's a fried chicken place called Risa, which I used to love. Oh, I so know when this I got one. Risa, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because you've been to Berlin. Yeah. So when you first emailed me, I was like, oh my God, Risa? Is it email me? Do they want me to be a brand <laughs> partner? <laughs> Not that I would be a brand partner or a fried chicken place, because to be honest, I'm trying to eat less meat. But yeah, I don't know. Every time like you email me, it's like, oh, Risa's messaging me, you know? Well, you know, I have a lot of friends who are living in Berlin and whenever they visit my country, they always mention about Risa Chicken. Oh no, I'm so cliche. I've done it. Oh <laughs> God. No, I'm, I'm really happy to hear this from you as well. But I'm that person who makes really obvious jokes about your name. <laughs> So, Risa, it's been so interesting talking to you. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Honestly, I feel like I could speak to you for hours. I've wanted to come to Asia for a long time, but I genuinely feel like I want to come to Asia definitely um, sometime soon, just to experience it for myself. Yeah, you should come, yeah, whenever, yeah, right after the pandemic finished. Honestly, if I'm in Tokyo, I'll actually hit you up. I will. You can take me out to a karaoke or to a club or something. Yeah, I would rather take you out to some of the izakayas of my favorites. Okay, nice. And wait, and like there'll be food as well. It's a restaurant, right? I guess I eat Japanese food here, but I can't really compare it to in Japan. But I'm obsessed with Japanese food, so I can only imagine how many times better it would be in the actual country. Mm-hmm. Oh, what kind of food? What kind of Japanese food do you like? Like sushi or? Oh, no. Now I'm on the spot. I mean, I love sushi. I love ramen so much. Like, I'm in love with it. Oh, my God. I think I had mochi for the first time properly, like, about two weeks ago. And it changed my life. Honestly, I was saying to my friend, like, before that, I was in my pre-mochi stage of life. And now I'm in my (laughs) post-mochi stage of life. But no, mochi is just, oh, my God. I love that shit so (laughs) much. So much. Yeah, no, honestly. So I would, if I came to Japan, I would just, like, i maybe message you one day and then, like, eat for the rest of the time I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's promise. All right, man. But it's been so nice talking to you. Um, I really appreciate the time you've taken to speak to me. It felt it felt like an exploration of Japanese society as well as the music scene. So I'm really glad you were here. Thank you for having me today. And it was really a fun moment for me to have a conversation with you. Because, you know, as I referred earlier in our conversation, we have less opportunities where we can talk about, like, I mean, exchange ideas of different uh, societies and ideas so it was really a valuable experience for me so yeah thank you so much honestly it's been a learning experience for me i thank you so much for being here so bye (laughs) yeah bye. bye and of course before i finally sign out 
it is imperative that I say a massive thank you to all of the amazing and inspiring women DJs who join me on this first series of the Assurance Podcast. So massive shout out, massive, massive thanks to Campire, to Valisucci, to Lillian Chilela, to Bad Sister, to Zena and Risa. So thanks guys. Honestly, you've all been amazing and inspired so many people. So this has been the Assurance Podcast, a follow-up to my documentary that explored the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. Assurance, the documentary, focused on women in Lagos's music scene, but overall, Assurance is all about spotlighting voices away from the European and North American club scenes, which tend to dominate in conversations around gender and representation in music. And helping me share this empowering conversation has been Adidas and Zalando, who sponsored this podcast as part of their Share Her Power campaign.